0: The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest
1: research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm
0: Lindsay. Welcome. Yes. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great. I think we have a great show for you today. Yes. So September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month nationally. And so we wanted to focus on depression and suicide prevention, and so we have a special guest with us today. So I'll introduce her a little bit here, and you can join me, Lindsay. So Emily Gard is a licensed individual clinical social worker. She's nationally certified mental health first aid trainer and has over 10 years of experience in the field of social work. She earned her undergraduate degree from Concordia
1: College and a master's degree in social work from the University of North Dakota. She initially worked
0: as a chemical dependency social worker before pursuing a graduate education degree.
1: Currently, Emily's employed by Sanford Health as an integrated health therapist. And she was named Sanford Health Clinical Employee of the Year in 2017. When Emily's not at work, she enjoys spending time at the lake with her husband and her five children. We're very glad she's
0: joining us today. Yes. we have Emily Gard in the studio with us. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're so glad to have you today. And usually when we have guests on, we like you to just start with kind of a one-liner or two-liner about yourself and how you got to what you're doing today.
2: Absolutely. So I uh, am a licensed individual clinical social worker, and I have my master's degree in social work. I chose social work because I enjoy empowering people and helping them to be uh, the best that they can be and that's a really good avenue to to be able to do that. Today we're talking about
0: um, depression and suicide prevention. September's National Suicide Prevention Month so we felt this would be a time a good time to go ahead and bring this topic up. So let's start by just defining what depression is and talk a little bit about
2: that. So there's lots of different types of depression, but just in general, uh, that kind of feeling down, uh, depressed, hopeless, maybe some feelings of helplessness, Uh, we might see um, this being lasting for a short time, or we can see it lasting for, you know, more of a a long period of time, months on end. Um, Typically, you know, depression sometimes comes out of nowhere, other times there's stressors that can... um, we call them situational stressors that can that can kind of get that those depressive thoughts in gear. Um, so so really, um, just more of that down again. Maybe some tearfulness, hopelessness. Um, and a lot of times we might see, uh, changes in interest. So, you know, the person really used to enjoy bowling and now it's like, I just don't even want to get up and do that. Um, appetite changes, a lot of times sleep changes, increased irritability, uh, a lot of muscle tension, or even some stomach aches, headaches, things like that, that we see present, um, with people who are uh, either developing depression or experiencing depression.
0: Yeah, and I would say it's not uncommon for everyone to have some of those symptoms at various times in their life. It's when it becomes more persistent and pervasive that we
2: call it depression. Absolutely, great point. Um, so yes, we all have those days where we feel down or don't want to do anything, just kind of tired or needing more sleep, but you're right, it's more of that, that prolonged um, period of time when we start to get more concerned. And
1: I think sometimes we see uh, people in our office who are experiencing their depression in more physical symptoms too. Um, So fatigue is a big one. Absolutely. A lot of time nausea or upset
2: stomach. A lot of GI concerns too. So that diarrhea, like you said, upset stomach, um, those things that aren't always the, we don't think of depression as being the, the first cause all the time.
0: Right, and that can change too throughout the lifespan where I think in younger people like kids, we tend to see more of the GI, stomach aches, that kind of thing. Uh, middle-aged adults is generally more of the typical symptoms that we would expect. And then what about in older adults?
2: Older adults, we might see um, more isolation, um, those changes in, in wanting to do things, sleeping more, irritability, uh, increased frustration levels can be sometimes a sign. Um Yeah, Yeah, and I would say
0: irritability and that frustration is definitely what I tend to see in patients in that older population. We have the slowed
1: thinking. Sometimes it can mask and look like uh, dementia or changes in memory and thinking. Um, And that can just be a symptom of depression in the older adult. Great point. What do you think is the difference between just sadness or grief and
2: depression? So um, sadness and grief would be a, a, a more typical response to a stressor. Um, for instance, the death of a loved one, um, it would be typical that uh, somebody would be really tearful about that and maybe have changes in sleep, some irritability, um, but we typically would then see that, that stressor ahead of time, whereas depression, we don't always have a cause. Um, it's more of that or organic in nature. I think that's a great point to bring up because we sometimes um, question, you know, are we handling these stressors well? Am I am I depressed? Um, we really want to look for those those red flags. If they continue to persist, um, you know, for for more than that kind of month to two month time period after after that stressor.
1: And I think starting to affect
2: other areas of your life might be a clue too. You think? Absolutely. I always like to think of it too as, you know, depression and, and all mental health um, illnesses really affect your ability to, to live, laugh, and love those kind of main areas of your life. Um, as cliche, cliche as it sounds, it, it really does impact, you know, our relationships, our jobs, um, and just our overall quality of life. And so absolutely, when it's starting to kind of um, impede in your, in your overall joy and your, your ability to kind of function in your day-to-day life, red flag, Absolutely. So
0: depression obviously has a spectrum of severity. It can be from mild and then we tend to call it dysthymia or it can be seasonal in the situation of seasonal affective disorder. And it can also be very severe, leading people to have thoughts of wanting to end their life and suicide. Um, Talk about that with us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, suicide is a a very serious matter um, and we want to take it seriously every time. Um, I like to think about suicide in the context of depression as a side effect of depression so just as somebody you know with diabetes we might see high blood sugars or low blood sugars um, the same goals with depression we really want to think about and, and make sure we're watching for those warning signs um, of, of suicide because a lot of times people that experience that that down mood for a long period of time have thoughts that it would just be better if I were dead and I didn't wake up. Um, And so we, you know, there's a, there's a, again, a spectrum of of those suicidal thoughts and we can maybe get into those in a little bit, but absolutely. That's a, that's a side effect of depression. So I
1: think there's maybe a misnomer about if you talk to a depressed person about killing themselves, that that's going to make them want to kill themselves or put that idea in their head.
2: Do we find that to be true? So actually what the research would tell us is, um, a person experiencing suicidal ideations, those thoughts that we, they might be better off dead, um, are really ambivalent, right? So they're, they're on, I kind of think of it as on, on one shoulder, they have this, um, thought that I just, I can't go on. I wish I were dead. Um, things would just be a lot better. And on the other shoulder, the other thought is kind of saying, but you know, I have all these reasons to live and these things that are important to me and maybe relationships or jobs. And so they're ambivalent, um. And the person experiencing those suicidal ideations actually wants to be asked um, about, you know, what are they thinking about? How how have things been going? Um, and and have they been thinking about killing themselves? So so in fact, you know, while we as a person that are, are asking either a loved one or a patient about suicide um, can maybe have some of that um, fear or uneasiness about asking them, it really has been proven that it um, is not going to place ideas in their head that they haven't that person hasn't already thought about that's
0: helpful to know I think uh, really important because we probably tend to shy away from you know if we're seeing somebody a friend or colleague who seems depressed or seems like things are down I think we tend to just shy away from those hard conversations and so knowing that it's okay to ask and it's okay to um, dig into things a little bit is a good thing.
2: Absolutely. I like to always point out, too, that just making observations, you know, so I've noticed that you previously come to coffee and you you haven't been coming. Um, You know, how are you? Um, Just like we, you know, ask somebody if they broke their arm, how are things going? You know, um, how are you feeling? Completely okay to to just kind of notice those changes. Can you
1: tell us about some warning signs that somebody might be thinking pretty deeply about suicide?
2: Yeah. So warning signs um, in regards to suicide, you know, we think about um, the, the kind of more obvious one is people talking about um, death, whether they, you know, say, I wish I were dead or I just don't think I can do this anymore. Um, a common one that I, I hear a lot is um, my wife or my husband or my kids or whoever would just be better off without me. If I wasn't here, um, they'd be better off without me. Um, feeling like they're a burden is another really big one you know, um, feeling that they're, that they're isolated. Um, connection is a really big thing, um, in, in survivors of suicide. Um, what they, what they've told us is that, um, that those feelings of, um, disconnected, disconnectedness, um, are are a big warning sign and people, people really want to feel connected, which is another protective factor. Um, and we'll talk about those in a little bit, but those things that protect somebody from, from ending their life. Um, so feeling disconnected is one of those, those warning signs. Another one is obviously giving away things. Um, you know, sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty when somebody is experiencing those suicidal ideations, but giving away um, important things in their lives, whether that be clothing or, you know, special memory books or things like that, that um, they want to make sure are in good hands. Preparing, uh, we call those preparatory behaviors. So, um, you know, purchasing firearms, um, you know, making sure that... Um, their their um, like will is in order or health insurance Um, those are all all warning signs
0: what about patients with you know suicidal ideation coming into the primary care setting do people who are getting to that point of thinking about suicide tend to come in and what should clinicians and clinic staff be aware of
2: Actually, um, a large portion of individuals who die by suicide do present to their primary care clinic within the first, or the, I'm sorry, the month. Um, before dying by suicide. So um, that's a pretty, pretty big um, percentage of people. I think it's 80% um, that present to the clinic prior to that. So we actually see quite a few people in those stages um, of, of ambivalence where they're looking for help. Uh, the tricky part is a lot of times patients will come forward and just say, hey, here's what I'm here for. I've been feeling down, depressed. I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Other times we're gonna see those symptoms like we talked about earlier fatigue, you know, stomach aches, muscle tension, headaches um, that aren't quite as obvious um, and and they're presenting for a different reason. So that's why we have lots of good screening tools and things like that to open up that conversation about what they're really there for. Sure,
0: yeah. And so as a friend or a family member, if you see somebody or as a physician, if you see somebody going through kind of these changes, what's the next step? This is a hard thing to observe and um, feels like you would maybe be intruding on someone's personal space to um, jump in and say something so what what should one do
2: yeah, so if you're concerned about a loved one or a patient or a friend, um, colleague, anybody, the most important thing I would say is ask, right? Um, or, or, or you know, make those observations. Um, I'm noticing, I'm concerned. Um, the thing I like to to really make sure that we talk about too is is using the word suicide is completely okay. Um, sometimes we feel a little bit hesitant to to ask um, those to use those exact words, but you know, are you feeling like you? Um, are going to kill yourself? Um, do you have thoughts you wish you were dead? Could go to sleep and not wake up? Um, do you have thoughts of suicide? Um, just asking the person if um, if they are thinking about suicide is completely okay. We don't need to shy around shy around the topic.
0: Sure. Yeah. There's such a strong stigma associated with it that I think it's still um, definitely a difficult thing for people to talk about. Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the more that we talk about it and the more that we um, are, support individuals that are struggling, the the better we can um, kind of work together to decrease that stigma.
0: Yeah. And that's a really interesting point too. You know, I think when people have physical illnesses, we tend to help them, support them, their friends tend to gather around them and mm-hmm. I think the opposite is probably true
2: with mental health issues. Absolutely. I think that you hit the nail on the head. Um, I like to think about it as um, somebody is diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of rally around them. We might buy a T-shirt. We buy bracelets. We bake casseroles. We send them cards. We call. We text. I mean, you name it, right? Like, yeah. we we do it. Um, and somebody that's, you know, struggling with depression or anxiety or any other mental health concerns, um, typically we, we move away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really move towards. We might even talk about them to another person or to a worker or to a friend and hey do you know how so and so is doing um and really you know like we talked about before that connectiveness is really important so reaching out directly to that person and saying hey how are you doing sending a quick call um text whatever it might be so they know that they're not alone mm-hmm. what are ways that we can do that when we're
1: somewhat fearful of the behavior that they're exhibiting like fearful for your own safety um because of how their mental illness is is showing them to be a little more erratic or aggressive than
2: their normal. Um, so yeah, if you, you know, are, are fearful, you always want to make sure you keep yourself safe. Um, law enforcement is always a great option and will accompany you to a situation if you don't feel comfortable. Um, a lot of times, you know, we might see somebody that's um, escalated, whether that be, you know, a raised voice, yelling. Um, and typically what that really shows us is that they're scared. That person is scared. Um, and so what I have found helpful is to say, you know, by, by you screaming or yelling, I'm feeling nervous. And then typically that person will say, I didn't mean to make you nervous. Uh, and so really kind of, um, helping them to feel comfortable in the situation. And sometimes that means saying nothing. Sometimes that just means sitting there and letting that person, um, you know, get their point across whichever way they want to do it. Um, right yeah and i think you know it's a
0: it's a difficult situation so if it was somebody who was a friend or acquaintance who you knew but weren't close to and maybe you know had sent a few text messages back and forth what what should your level of involvement be in that situation when you notice a change
2: so i would say that level of involvement um even if it's you know acquaintance or somebody that you know okay should be pretty high um because that person you might be that one person that they know that they can reach out to even if you aren't close in other areas of your life. Um, people are always, they remember who they can talk to. Sure.
1: Yeah. So are there resources that, that friends and family can reach out to to get help for somebody or does it always have to be the actual
2: person who's experiencing the, the depressive symptoms or suicidal symptoms? Absolutely. So there's a lot of different, um, support groups, even if we're just thinking about local support groups, you can usually find those, um, listed online. Um, otherwise there's a lot of national resources, resources that are great too. Um, the national suicide hotline, um, the American foundation for suicide prevention has a lot of great resources on their website for, um, survivors of suicide, family members. Um, and so a lot of good resources right there on the website. Great. Yeah. And we can post those links in our show notes. So if anyone wants to check those out, you sure can awesome the other thing too that's a really good tool that you don't need training for or they just ask that you uh, watch a short video is the um, Columbia suicide severity rating scale uh, and that's just six questions that you can ask anybody um, that you are concerned about and um, that will kind of help you with their with their risk level and again anybody can use that you don't have to have any specific training um, and if you just google Columbia or like you said you can post it on your on the on the notes too but another great resource to kind of just get your brain thinking about what are some questions that I can ask somebody that's struggling.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. And you were talking about alluded to some protective factors um, for someone who may have thoughts of suicide, but something that protects them from actually going through with it.
2: Yeah. So we're always looking for protective factors and we're uh, talking to somebody experiencing suicidal ideation. So those are those factors that um, will prevent them from dying by suicide. And um, we might look for, you know, relationships that they value. Um, are they futuristically thinking? So I always like to think about, OK, what's coming up that's keeping them kind of engaged and and they're looking forward to. Um, some people are, you know, very loyal to their animals, so that's another really big one. You know, I, I, my dog really relies on me or my cat. Um, children, um, mother, father, you know, those different roles that we play uh, are really big protective factors. Employment, um, those things that kind of keep you futuristically thinking we consider protective factors.
1: And so is that something as a friend that you should try to highlight in your
2: conversations? you absolutely could, could kind of highlight them and, and, and help them to kind of outline what are those things that kind of keep you going? What's the one most important thing that you live for? Um, what we don't want to do is guilt someone, right? Like, so for example, if, um, they're talking about killing themselves and you say, um, but what about your family? What would your family do if you were not here? Um, those are more kind of those guilt and shame comments. Um, so we really want to kind of, you know, help the the individual that's struggling um, develop that kind of intrinsic motivation for for living. And so developing those perfective, protective factors and letting them come up with what's the most important thing to live for um, is a good way of kind of getting to those protective factors.
0: I wanted to jump back for a minute. I noticed that a few times you, Emily, said dying by suicide. And can you just elaborate on that a little bit and maybe the terminology that we use or what terminology we should use when we're talking about absolutely?
2: Suicide. So I think that's really changing and I think that can speak to the the overall stigma of mental health and, and kind of the, the movement that we've made. Um, but a lot of times people previously would would um say somebody committed suicide right um and we like to think about somebody just as they would die of cancer die of a heart attack they we die by suicide we don't com- we commit crimes uh we don't commit suicide um so rather we die by suicide and i think if we can work on that language it again helps to decrease the stigma
0: i think that's really and good. it's more yeah. accurate right absolutely. i mean that's exactly what happened absolutely yeah <laughs> How do we know if somebody is talking about suicide or um, feeling really down and maybe makes a statement that is worrisome or scary? How how can I know if they're just threatening, if they're just putting it out there or when I need to be concerned? And I know you've kind of talked about specific things to watch for, but is there a way to really tell? Is this a real threat or is this just they're depressed and they're telling me
2: this? Mm Great question, because I think we see that a lot, you know, the, the comments of I just I can't do this anymore. I wish I was dead. Um, I, I can't go on. And so I think that there's a difference between between ideations versus intent. And so that's where we kind of want to hone in on. Um, and then like I talked about the Columbia a little bit earlier, but that's a, a scale that really helps you to kind of hone in on on um, ideations or just kind of wishing I were dead um, versus um, I have a plan. I have intent. Um, I know when I'm going to do this. I know how I'm going to do this. Um, and it's pretty thought out and calculated. Um, again, those are going to be things that we want to that tells us that their their risk level is is, is rising. Um, so ideations. It's a red flag and we want to keep our feelers out, but we really want to be looking for that, um, those preparatory kind of, what what have they done to think about um, their their plan. The other uh, biggest kind of predictor of, of future suicide attempts is past suicide attempts. So we always want to ask, you know, have you ever attempted to kill yourself in the past? When was that? Um, how did you do it? Um, and kind of walk through the storyline with that one. Uh, In addition to that, um, if, if somebody has thought about suicide and not um followed through with with some of their some of their plans we want to know why um so just kind of being curious you know you you told me that you know at one point you were thinking about um, laying on the railroad tracks tell me why you decided not to do that what what kept you from doing that um that also helps to develop those protective factors when you're having that conversation with somebody
0: so actually trying to get them to think about what reasons they have to keep living
2: Absolutely. And then sure. as the person or the friend or the coworker, whoever, you can build off of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: What kind of hope do these people have? Do people get better? What can their family and friends expect? What can individuals who are feeling depressed and suicidal
2: expect for the future? Absolutely. So we know that, um, you know, every emotion is temporary. Um, and I think that can be kind of a big weight off of, of individual's shoulders when we're carrying this kind of heavy, I like to think about it as a rucksack on your back. It's just full of rocks and, man, it's hard. Um, but recovery is certainly possible. And what we know is is typically if somebody has experienced, you know, those suicidal thoughts at some point in their life, we don't typically um, experience them again. Um, you know, there are people that are chronically you know, feeling like I just wish I were not here. Um, but for the most part, uh, absolutely recovery is possible. And, um, and people do, um, get better and experience that kind of joy and, um, quality of life that they're looking for.
0: Yeah. That's, I think really important for people to know that there is hope and that, um, like you said, emotions are temporary and things will get better.
2: I think also people to know that they're not alone. Um, man, I wouldn't have a full-time job if if people didn't experience um, depression and anxiety and all different sorts of things. Um, and so oftentimes it, it feels very alone and very isolating. Um, but but in fact, you know, uh, mental illness is very, very common mm-hmm. and um, very, very treatable. Um, so so absolutely hope is, is completely... A very tangible thing.
0: Yeah. So, if you are somebody who's experiencing this or knows somebody close who is, um, please encourage them to reach out to their care, to their clinician, to um, anyone else. Or we can again, we'll list some resources online too.
1: What are some ways that we um, non-medically treat depression?
2: Yeah. So, there's lots of different ways that we that we treat depression. Great question. Medications being one of them. Um, some of the non-medical things. Um, you know, therapy, uh, is extremely powerful with depression. Uh, we know that, um, you know, behavioral activation kind of doing those things that we absolutely don't want to do when we're depressed are the things that actually help us the most. So, you know, that, that, that exercise, um, healthy eating, um, getting out, um, uh, connecting with, with, um, With individuals that you find joy in in being with, uh, relationship building. um, All of those things that kind of get those natural endorphins going uh, for you and those kind of feel-good things are are really helpful. There are several medications
0: that can be used to help treat depression Um, and Lindsay, you want to start kind of giving an overview of those?
1: Sure, probably the most common are what we call the SSRIs, and they're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so they're increasing the serotonin um, that's released between the cells in our brain, so our the serotonin can can have effect on the cell next to it, and that's what um, helps with our mood. And so that's um, a a lot of medications that are in this grouping. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to know to get the right fit. Um, so some of these would be Lexapro, Celexa. Fluoxetine or Prozac. Zoloft or Sertraline.
0: Um, I always say the newer ones. Yes. Paxil. Yeah, and each of them has slightly different effects, like you alluded to, Lindsay. So um, some of it is just kind of trial and error to see which one works for an individual the challenge with these medications, they're very effective. One challenge is that it takes a few weeks to really know how they're going to affect someone. And so during that time, um, keeping a close eye on their, how they're doing is important. Um, but again, they can be very effective. Right. There is um, after a couple weeks after starting, if somebody
1: is suicidal, a temporary increase risk because of the medications improving kind of motivation and ability to act things out. But um, the full effect of those kinds of antidepressants isn't for about four to six weeks after starting it to make the changes in the brain that are necessary.
0: Yeah. And then there's a related class of medications, the SNRIs, which elevate both serotonin and norepinephrine levels in the brain. And again, that can improve energy and improve mood. Um, They work very similarly to the SSRIs. Uh, And then there are a few other less typical medications that we'll use too.
1: Right. So we have lots of options and, and um, oftentimes some anti, some newer, newer antipsychotics are used in depression to kind of help in the short term on, in certain situations and Typically, I think if you're started on a medication like this, you probably need to be on for at least six months is in general what we say, but it doesn't mean that that you're on
0: it for life. Absolutely. Yep. They don't have to be lifelong medications. A lot of times it takes that three to six months to kind of get over the hump with things. And then depending on um, situations, one can maybe try tapering off or if one's doing really well, then continuing just as they are. Most of these medications are very safe and um, really do quite well for the long term.
1: I think the biggest part is finding the right fit and Sometimes people can feel too flat or like they don't have any emotion. And so you have to play around with the dose or choose a different medication. Some can be stimulating um, and make people a little more anxious and jittery. um, And some can make people fatigued. Um, And interesting enough, there's some genetic testing that can be done um, in pharmacogenetics that helps us maybe pick a more appropriate one instead of going through all the, the trials at the start.
0: Yeah, fortunately with modern medicine, we can usually get to the right medication a little quicker, which is great. What are some other side effects? I would say sometimes
1: nausea, but that typically goes away within a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, weight changes can occur. Um, some are known to cause more weight gain and improved appetite. Others cause a little bit of weight loss or at least, um, you know, no change in appetite. Um, I think those are the major, things. some, I guess, sexual side effects too. Yeah. What about drinking alcohol when on them? Yeah, generally we recommend uh, for sure avoiding heavy alcohol consumption. The other thing is alcohol is a depressant. And so if you're somebody who's struggling with depression, then even if alcohol temporarily makes you feel better, um, it it does cause worsened depression. So we do recommend limiting or moderating alcohol intake.
1: And there's some interesting new newer things happening for acute suicide um thoughts of suicide or plans for suicide uh there's been some studies on on some new medications that can be used in the emergency room for that which have shown good response too.
0: In the past we've used ECT or electroconvulsive therapy and that still is used at times and can be very effective but also has some long-term side effects and so um, the idea that we can use medications and I think many of them being used are anesthetics right that we use for anesthesia, um, really that are well-tolerated and don't have significant lasting side effects that can kind of turn things around for somebody. It's really exciting.
1: There's always um, inpatient hospital stays and partial hospital treatments to to get through a severe depression as well, which is often often important and needed.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes getting somebody out of their regular routine and just getting them to the
2: care that they need can help them uh, get through things. I can speak to the inpatient and and partial, like you had mentioned, inpatient um, typically is a pretty short stay until we can get somebody, you know, stabilized and through that immediate crisis. And that partial hospitalization, or we might hear it referred to as PHP, um, is more of a day program uh, where you go to different groups. It's more group based, um, building different skills uh, while doing medication changes. So I like to tell people we can get a lot done in a pretty short period of time and get you feeling A lot better faster Uh, so those are kind of the the different levels of of therapy and then of course outpatient individual therapy which we know um, is very successful and it's even you know we know that if it's done with medication a lot of times we can get some pretty good benefit pretty quickly
0: so there is hope yes and one other thing I would add is exercise we know that exercise can work there are studies on it it can work like an antidepressant so equal to taking a medication um, it can help elevate the mood, boost endorphins, and just help the whole body feel better. Sometimes helps with sleep. So. Um that's one thing that I would say. shouldn't be done in isolation if somebody's really depressed, but should be done with the rest of the treatment plan.
2: So does it have to be like vigorous exercise or do you typically find that if you're just up and moving, like tell us a little bit about that. I
0: think, you know, I would have to look at the studies. I think it is um, more, it takes a little more time to develop or to to do enough exercise to raise those hormones. So 20 to 30 minutes, I would say 20 being the minimum, several Mm -hmm. days per week. Um, Just getting up and walking around probably isn't quite enough, but going for a good 25 minute walk where you're breathing a little bit hard maybe sweating a little bit that will definitely work and
1: mm-hmm. i think there's studies about just being outside as well so yes.
2: hiking or walking outdoors Yeah, I was just going to say that, that even just being outside those, you know, being listening to to different sounds, you know, things that you can see, maybe feeling the wind on your arms. um, That kind of mindfulness approach is really effective with with that depressed mood as well. Um, So, yeah, well, it's you know, you want to we want to get our heart rates up too. it's even being outside and, and, and having that fresh air can also be helpful.
1: And I think, like you said, mindfulness and the cognitive behavioral training, I think, does a lot with deep breathing and meditation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's involved with, with those yeah. kinds of things? Yeah,
2: so cognitive behavioral therapy would be kind of the the frontline treatment for depression. And with that approach, we really want to kind of look at our thoughts and how that's affecting kind of our emotions and our behaviors. Um, and typically, we can find that they're pretty connected. Um so, so we want to just kind of keep a log of how that's going and, and look for those thoughts that maybe aren't so helpful and then how can we change those? How can we make them more helpful so that, so that our, our behavior in, in the end is changed um, or our emotion is changed how we think about a, a different situation? Uh, mindfulness is also very, very um, helpful. And really that's kind of the intention to pay attention um, or to be present. And a lot of people think I have to lay down and be super calm and not move and I can't have any thoughts come in my head. And we're human, so that's really hard to do. Uh, so actually, you know, being mindful is—it is, doesn't have to be quite that intense Um, it's more just kind of paying attention to what's going around you Um, you know maybe naming a couple things you can see a couple things you can hear a couple things you can feel uh, taste smell um, kind of using all those five senses to be present you other you uh, also mentioned deep breathing which is a really helpful thing Um, we know that kind of um, tells our our limbic system or our system that controls kind of that emotion regulation right if a a bear is chasing us our limbic system is going to kind of get fired up Um, and so a deep breath uh, really kind of resets that Um, and we really want to focus on filling up our our stomach rather than our lungs Um, so if we're taking a shallow breath um, our chest is going to fill up and that's not what we want um, because that releases more of those stress hormones Um, so I always tell people to lay on 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 a flat surface and take a deep breath through your nose let your belly fill up hold it for a couple seconds, two, three, four, and then blow out like you're blowing out a candle. So super, super slow. Um, And if you can sit and do that a couple times a day, people get a lot of great benefit.
1: And do you know, is there any good um,
2: apps for that with today's technology? Good one. Yes, absolutely. Um, So there's lots of great apps um, out there. Headspace is a really good one. Calm is a really good one. Um, There's... um, I believe it's called breathe for children. Um, lots of great ones if you just go to the app store and look for for um, guided meditation. I'm sorry, YouTube has a good ones if you go to, and look for um, guided meditation, but I'm a big fan of headspace and calm are the ones that mm-hmm. I kind of recommend. yeah, I've heard of most those frequently. Well. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. yeah, that's really helpful. Nice to know that there are many ways out there to treat depression and help people so that we can avoid suicide and help them move forward. Absolutely. We appreciate you coming and talking with us today.
2: Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Emily. So
0: Kirsten, I I know that you have a health pearl for today. Yes, this week I wanted to talk about the value of unplugging and turning off the technology. I think this is a great one. Yeah, so I think, um, you know... I, Technology tends to invade all of our lives, and it can absolutely be very useful and helpful. I use it every day in my job, and I appreciate it because right. my brain isn't quite big enough for everything I need to remember. Um, but it also can start to intrude on us, especially all those, you know, email alerts or social media alerts or various alerts that pop up on our phone on a day-to-day basis and interrupt what we're already trying to do, or just pull our attention away from life in general. So, I think um, my health pearl for today is just try unplugging for a while you know whether it's an hour a day where you leave your phone behind and go do something or if you're somebody who feels like boy an hour sounds really painful I don't know if I can do that then maybe you even need to think about a day without technology and leaving your phone behind just to reset and um, focus on being present and you know we have lots of studies that say that technology Um, spending too much time on the screens can be depressing, can cause more anxiety. And so just leaving the technology behind and going outside or just being present in whatever you're doing can be a really good thing. Yeah. I know that we always do a no electronics at the dinner
1: table. So that's our one little time, but I've had a couple of weekends where I've had to institute a no electronic weekend. Um, and I think that's really helpful to make the kids do that. Um, So that they have to learn learn how to entertain themselves with things other than YouTube or um, a video game.
0: Yeah, they either have to talk to each other or play, you know, do something in the physical world build Legos Mm -hmm. or play outside or whatever and I think it's a good thing. And I, we usually, every few years we go on a trip where we are Mm -hmm. off the grid and don't have technology and it is so relaxing. It's just Mm -hmm. a wonderful feeling to, we're forced to completely disconnect and Um, sometimes it's really hard but i also love it very much
1: i think the couple times that i've forgotten my phone um and gone someplace it's
0: it is kind of nice thing. it's liberating it is yep yep i agree like you're a slave to your phone so you know if you if if you feel like you're somebody who's gotten really dependent on that technology maybe just pick an hour a day or a few hours once a week where you're just technology free and it can really um help open up some time and space and let you be present in whatever you're doing. Right. I like it. Unplug. Thanks so much for listening. Um, We'll have more information from today's episode on our website at www.everythingdoc.com. That's E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G-D-O-C dot C-O-M.
1: And you can um, subscribe to our podcasts on both Apple Podcasts and Google Play. You can also follow us on Facebook
0: and Twitter. And if you have feedback or questions or comments, which we always appreciate, you can get in touch with us at mail at everythingdoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G-D-O-C dot C-O-M. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye.